0: If you want to turn with me in your copy of Scripture to John chapter 12. John chapter 12. Sometimes when we come to God's Word, especially in the Gospels, we see these great stories of salvation and saving faith, right? Maybe it's the woman at the well in John chapter 4, the woman who had previously lived an adulterous life, had multiple husbands, and was living with someone that was not her husband. She meets Christ at the well, and even though at first she is standoffish and doesn't want what he has to offer, by the end we see her saving faith. She comes to faith, this Samaritan woman, and we see the glory of Christ's work of salvation. But other times when we come to the Scripture's It's not the glory of salvation we see, but it's the darkness of sin and unbelief. And that is what we will look at in our passage today the hardness and the blindness of unbelief. That as we've come, through John's gospel, we've seen the highest of highs and the lowest of lows. And as we've come to this last week of our Lord's life, as he's approaching his sacrificial death on the cross, the end of our Lord's public ministry will come to an end today. And even though these crowds that have been gathered with him, the people that have seen him, they've, they've, they've seen that he's proclaimed himself to be the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, the fountain of living water that brings true satisfaction. As we just read, the true bread of life, the good shepherd. And yet we've seen the world does not come to him. They've even seen, displayed in his power, the feeding of thousands of people miraculously from fish and loaves. They've seen him heal a lame man, bring sight to a blind man, and even raise a man back from the dead. And yet his own people will not receive him. And you and I see this, and we see in these accounts given to us by John the reason that he even wrote his gospel, and we see in these the true glory of Christ and why he came. That we might see that he is the Son of God and the Christ, and that by believing we might have life in his name. But as we've seen, and as we've gone through John's gospel, we've seen that this actually reveals the hardness and the blindness of unbelief. That even though those who have seen and heard our Lord had every external advantage, every reason to believe in him, they saw his miracles, they heard him preach, they saw him in the flesh, we see that they will not believe. That they saw the light of the world and instead chose darkness. They saw the one that could give true spiritual sight and yet they chose their blindness. They saw the glory of God in Christ and as we'll see today, instead choose the glory that comes from man. But hopefully, as we look at this passage in light of what all of Scripture has to say we'll see that it is only when we look at the darkness and the hardness of unbelief, the sinfulness of it, and our total inability to save ourselves, that we can truly see the glory of the redemption and the salvation that God has wrought for us in Christ. It's only when we see that dark backdrop that we can see the true light of the glory of the gospel of Christ. So I'm going to read our passage this morning, I'll pray for us, and then we will look to God's Word this morning. We'll be looking at verses 34 through 43, but I'll begin at verse 31. This is the Word of the Lord. Jesus says these words, Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little longer. Walk while you have the light lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. And though he had done so many signs before him, they still did not believe in him. So that... The word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. Listen to these words. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Let's pray this morning. Lord, we come before you this Lord's day as we tremble before your word, as it exposes the darkness and the blindness of unbelief. The unbelief that we all once walked in and the unbelief that we are prone to return to. And so we pray this morning, Lord, that you would Um, minister to us by your word, that by the power of your spirit this morning, you would open the eyes of our hearts to see our great need and our utter helplessness without your sovereign hand. We ask and pray this morning that you would reveal to us the truth of your word, and that even though it is sobering and sometimes difficult to look at, that we would come this morning to rest and have confidence in your word, that we would see it not as the word of man, but what as it truly is the word of God. We ask and pray that you would help us this morning, and we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So we're going to look at three different things this morning if you want to follow along with me. We'll look at verses 43 through 46. We'll see Jesus, the light of the world. The second thing we'll look at in verses 37 through 40, we'll see the blindness of unbelief. And then finally, in verses 41 through 43, we'll see the glory of man versus the glory of God. Now, beginning at verse 34, we see that Jesus had just spoken to these people about the necessity, the absolute necessity of his coming crucifixion, of his coming hour of death, and his need to be lifted up so that all people would be drawn to him. And we see in our passage today the response of the crowd to this message. Jesus had just proclaimed, I'm going to be lifted up and I'm going to draw all people to myself. And we see in our verses today the response of the crowd. And we see that in verse 34. And we can summarize their response similarly to this. Right? In verse 34, they basically make one statement and they ask two questions. They say, we've heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Okay, we can kind of summarize what they're saying, but like this. They're basically saying to Jesus, it seems to us that the Old Testament says that the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one is going to remain forever. Okay? Okay. How can you say to us that this same one is going to have to be lifted up in death and die? Who is this one that you're speaking of? How is it possible that the Christ will both remain forever and also die? Okay, how can these things be? And so we can see pretty quickly that these crowds both understand what our Lord is saying and misunderstand what he's saying. They both have some clarity as to what is being articulated here by our Lord, but they also have confusion. We see first that they understand what our Lord says, they're following. what our Lord had just said in verses 31 and 32. They understand that whoever this Son of Man is, that he is indeed the Messiah. This one that our Lord is talking about, he indeed is the Messiah, he is the Christ, he is the Anointed One, and they understand our Lord's words that he must be lifted up in death. He must be lifted up in death. Death. So they're, in a sense, they're following what he's saying. They're not confused by his language. They're very much following what our Lord is saying. They even understand that this is coming from the Old Testament. If you look at verse 34, it says, We've heard from the law. So they're understanding that the Old Testament predicted this, that our Lord is teaching this, that the Christ remains forever. But we also see that they've misunderstood. There's confusion and they remain in the dark. And we can see this because in their response, they do not understand how these two truths can be. How can this one, the Christ, remain forever and also be lifted up in death? How is this possible? How can this be true? How can these things be? How can the Christ die and yet remain forever? How can the Son of Man be lifted up in death and yet be the Messiah? How is this possible? And as we see in our text, they have tripped over the great stumbling block. They have stumbled over the rock of offense, namely Christ and Him crucified. They've tripped over the simplicity and the humility of our Lord's message. That what the crowd was expecting, as we talked about in John chapter 12, they were expecting an earthly king. They were expecting a triumphal king that was gonna come save them from the Roman oppression, and they saw these promises in the Old Testament of this eternal kingship, right? We read about it this morning from David in Psalm 89. You could look at Psalm 110. It talks about this kingdom that's going to last forever. They were expecting this sort of kingdom, this eternal kingdom that would have no end, but an earthly kingdom at that. But they were not expecting the lowborn king who would ride in on a donkey, (laughs) They were not expecting the Son of Man that would actually be lifted up in death. They have tripped over the stumbling block of Christ and Him crucified. And we can see that they don't understand. They don't get how this is possible. They haven't seen the true glory and the real gospel of Christ's message. That He has come not only to live and be glorified, but he also came to suffer and to die for sinners. And this is not for lack of what Jesus taught. It's not because he forgot to mention this part, right? It's not for lack of Christ's teaching. It's not because he didn't teach them well enough. It's not because he didn't explain himself well enough, but it's because they did not believe, right? A crucified messiah, a son of man that's going to have to die, a savior, the suffering servant, right? This is all foolishness to them. It's folly. It doesn't make any sense. And so we see our Lord's response in verse 35, that he uses this sort of word picture, this illustration, to make his final appeal to this crowd in our Lord's final words to, in his public ministry. That he uses this imagery, this word picture, using himself as the true light of the world to show their absolute necessity in believing in him, not only in his glory, but also in his suffering. And in many ways, we can kind of say that verse 36 is sort of an explanation of our Lord's illustration in verse 35. He's basically telling them that you don't want to start a trip in the dark, right? You don't, you don't begin a journey. You don't, you don't wait till it's dark to start your journey. You walk while it is light outside. You don't begin a trip in the dark. You walk while it is light. And in the same way, if they will not believe in his name now while he is standing there right in front of them, what hope is there for them when he is gone? right? There's, the answer is there's no hope, right? Darkness will overtake them. In other words, it's almost as if our Lord is saying this, I am going to be with you a little longer, and while you have the daylight, you need to walk. And the parallel statement is, you need to believe in the light. You need to believe in me, We could say it like this, today is the day of salvation. The sun is setting, and if you do not come to me now while I am standing here right in front of you, what hope will there be for you when I have ascended to the right hand of the Father? This is what he means by this sense of which where he is going, that he is going to leave, not saying that he's going to cease to exist, but rather he's going to ascend to the right hand of the Father of the father and so he's appealing to them he's saying come believe in the light walk in the light believe in me while i am here he even says become sons of light right sons of god by adoption what does john say in john chapter 1 those could be born of god right not not born by the flesh not born by the will of man but born of God. This is synonymous language for being born again, regeneration, become sons of light, made new with a new heart, come to me and have true life. So he's appealing to them. He's crying out to them, believe in the light. But we see that the crowds do not. And that leads us to our second point this morning, the blindness of unbelief the blindness of unbelief. That we see in our passage that even though Jesus had revealed Himself to these crowds, right? He had revealed Himself to them in His ministry. They had seen the visible signs of our Lord recorded for us in John's Gospel, and they had actually just heard a voice coming down out of heaven. (laughs) And yet, they do not believe. And yet, they do not believe. We see at the end of verse 36 that our Lord departs from them. He hides himself from these people, from the crowds, from the Jews. Not only physically removing his presence from them, but really kind of as an emblem and as a picture of the removal of his hand from them in judgment and the light of his presence that even though he had done so many signs in front of them, he had worked so many miracles, shown forth his glory and his power so clearly and irrefutably, yet they still did not believe. And this is what we read in verse 37. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. They still did not believe in him. And we can ask ourselves this morning, how is this possible? How can this be? And the answer is the blindness of unbelief. And we can think to ourselves, if anyone was going to believe in Christ, surely it would be these people standing there. In one sense, they had everything going for them. They had every external advantage right? They were born from the right family. They were born from the people of Israel. They had the entire Old Testament, the law and the prophets. They were the physical offspring of Abraham, the lineage of the Messiah. They had seen the miracles of our Lord, even him raise a man from the dead. And yet they will not believe. How is this possible? How can this be? How can these things be true? And as we see in the remaining verses, we'll see that when it comes to true saving faith, it depends not on human status or circumstances, not on human will or exertion, but only the sovereign will and mercy of God. Only the sovereign will and mercy of God. And this is what we see explained in the following verses. That we see here in verses 38 through 40, we see the darkness and the blindness of unbelief. We see the darkness and the blindness of unbelief. That even though he had done all these miracles, they still would not believe in him. And we see in verse 38, this is so that the word that was spoken by the prophet might be fulfilled, might come to pass, might take place. That what is happening in our Lord's day is the fulfillment of what Isaiah spoke about in Isaiah 53. That we see here John quote from Isaiah 53, verse 1, this great chapter in the Old Testament that promises the suffering servant. Where the prophet begins in his chapter, not with the great work that this this Redeemer would wrought and accomplish, but he begins first in Isaiah 53 with his utter rejection by the people by his utter rejection of the people. When the the prophet cries out in Isaiah 53 verse 1, he says this, Lord, who has believed? (laughs) Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Isaiah is distraught (laughs) He sees this message of the servant that's going to come and is going to suffer. He's going to be pierced for the transgression of his people. He's going to be crushed for their iniquity. And yet, this one, this suffering servant, is not being believed in, is not being received. Lord, who has believed? (laughs) It appears to Isaiah as if no one is believing this message of good news that the mighty arm, the mighty power of the Lord is revealing this message to a seeming few. And what's amazing about this is Isaiah wrote this 700 years before these words were spoken by John in the time of our Lord. And John is telling us that these words are fulfilled in the people's rejection of Christ, in the people's rejection of Christ. This not only confirms to us that Jesus is indeed the suffering servant pictured in Isaiah 53 but we also see the true hardness of heart of these people and their utter lostness without the sovereign work of the triune God and that's why we see this very sobering verse in verse 39 John tells us therefore they could not believe therefore they could not believe not because they lacked some sort of natural ability as if God was sort of tying their arms behind their back. Not because they lacked personal responsibility for their unbelief as if someone was forcing them to sin. But because if God does not act first, salvation is impossible. Because if God does not act first, salvation is impossible. That if God does not give a new heart, they cannot believe. That if God does not reveal himself, they are lost. That this is the doctrine that we call total inability. Total inability. This is really derived from what we believe about total depravity. That man in the state of sin is not only dead in their sins and trespasses, but has wholly lost all ability to convert himself or to please God. That man in the state of sin is not only dead in their trespasses and sins, but has lost all ability to convert himself and cannot please God. What does Paul say in Romans chapter 8, verse 7? He says this, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. It cannot. The mind that is set on the flesh cannot submit to God's law. We read this and confessed this in our confession of faith this morning, taken from our confession of faith in chapter 9 of free will. We read this, Man, by his fall into the state of sin, has lost all ability of will to any spiritual good accompanying salvation. So as a natural man, being altogether averse from that good and dead in sin, is not able by his own strength to convert himself or prepare himself thereunto. That this is not saying that God somehow causes people to not believe. But that if God does not act first, they cannot believe, right? That it's not as if these crowds and the Jews, or if we go to the book of Exodus with Pharaoh, right, it's not as if they really wanted to believe and God is somehow saying, no, you can't believe. I'm not going to let you believe. That's not what we mean when it says they could not believe. But rather, they cannot believe unless the sovereign, all-powerful arm of the Lord reveals salvation to them. Unless the all-powerful arm of the Lord reveals salvation to Him. And this is what we see in our passage. It's not as if God takes a heart that would otherwise be very soft, right? and, And makes it hard. But rather, He takes a heart that is already hardened by sin, a heart of stone, and by the removal of His hand, he hardens it further, right? It's not as if he takes a heart that is soft, that is, that's nice and that's good, and then he makes it hard, but rather that he takes a heart that is a heart that is already a heart of stone and removes his hand in judgment and hardens it further. That this is how we can make sense of what he says in verse 40, because on the surface, this language, I think, might trouble us a little bit. It says, He has blinded their eyes. He has hardened their hearts. This is a quote from Isaiah chapter 6, verse 10. This is what is often referred to as the judicial hardening of God, right? This is not God, as we said, forcing someone to unbelief, not forcing someone to sin, but rather lifting His hands. We could say, removing His restraints on sinful man. Paul says it like this in Romans 1. He says that God gives people over to their various passions and lusts by simply lifting his hand in judgment. God giving them exactly what they desire in their sin. God lifts his hand. And these, we can admit, are very sobering and and difficult words to work through, right? Because this is not something that we work through every Sunday when we gather together, and yet we see nonetheless that these words are true. And I think this causes us to consider not only the character of God, but the, the true nature of sinful man, right? That if God is holy, if He is really truly holy, and if man is really indeed sinful, then we have to start with this truth, that God does not have to extend His grace to anyone. That God does not have to extend His grace to anyone. That we're, we, we struggle with this, right? That God is not obligated to save. In America, we're very entitled people. We deserve this. We deserve that. We deserve this. And you've often probably heard this um, conundrum in the Christian um, scriptures said like this, how could a good God send anyone to hell, right? How could a good God send anyone to hell? But I think the real question that we need to ask is how could a good God send anyone to heaven? How could a good God send any of us to heaven? If we really know ourselves and the sinfulness of our souls, how could God dwell with us, (laughs) sinful creatures? The goodness of God, as one pastor said, is the greatest problem that the scripture presents. How could a good God dwell with sinful people? But as we look to the rest of scripture, we see that it is only by God's sovereign work that we are saved. Only by his gracious hand are we preserved. And that far from this being wrong or unjust of God, it is actually part of of his mercy. It is God's mercy and grace to act in this way. I really liked what Augustine said. He says this, when God gives his aid, he acts mercifully. And when he withholds it, he acts righteously. Right? When God gives his aid, he acts mercifully, graciously. And when he chooses to withhold it, he acts righteously that when God gives a new heart, when He regenerates someone who is dead in their sins and trespasses by the power and work of the Spirit, His mercy is magnified. And when in His infinite wisdom and for His own glory, He passes over some, withholding His saving hand, His justice is magnified. And that is what we see in our passage. In the hardening of the Jews, these old covenant people of God who are now rejecting the very Messiah that was supposed to come from their lineage, right? The promised seed of Abraham that was going to bless the nations, they are now rejecting their Messiah. God is now giving them over to their blindness, to their hardness, lifting His hand and giving them over to what they desire. And yet we see that this is not a surprise to God, but a fulfillment of what was promised in the Old Testament. And we see a very interesting verse here in verse 41. It says, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. That the glory Isaiah saw in Isaiah chapter 6, that great vision of the heavenly temple, right? The Lord of glory seated on his throne, is not only the glory of the Father, but is actually the glory also of the Son. And I'm going to talk about that at next week's sermon, so um, we can hold off on what there is to say about that. But we see in our passage the blindness and hardness of unbelief that was even predicted in the Old Testament, and we see in the following verses the reason why. We see in the following verses the reason why, and that leads us to our third point the glory of man versus the glory of God. That we see in our remaining verses the heart of why this is so, right? The heart of why these people are so hardened in their sin and unbelief, why they want to remain, why they do not want to come to the light, and why they ultimately will not believe. And the answer that is given is because they loved the glory of men rather than the glory of God they loved the glory of man rather than the, the glory of God that they loved the praises that come from man they love to receive praise from men rather than the glory that comes from the only God what does John say in John chapter 3 this is the judgment that light has come into the world but people loved the darkness rather than the light that they loved the darkness. <laughs> they loved it. They loved the darkness rather than the light. Far from anyone coercing them towards the darkness or forcing them, they're actually getting exactly what they want. They love the darkness. Why? Because it covers their sin and iniquity, right? The light comes in and it exposes them. They cannot be in the light. They love the darkness because they do not want their evil deeds exposed. They would rather receive the glory that comes from one another rather than the praise of their Creator. This is why Jesus says to the Pharisees in John chapter 5, He cries out, how can you believe? How can you believe when you receive the glory that comes from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? And the answer is, you cannot. How can you believe When you're seeking man's glory instead of God's glory, the implied answer is you cannot. It's impossible. You cannot seek the glory of man and still believe. And even though we see in verse 42 that some temporarily believe in Christ, right for a season they appear to have saving faith, it says even some of the authorities believed in Him. But as we see, this is not true saving faith. For fear of persecution... And for fear of losing their status in the synagogues, they shrivel up. Their faith does not last. That just like the seed that was sown along the rocky path from Matthew 13, and it springs up with joy for a moment, it appears genuine, it appears real, but because of the persecution of this world and trials and tribulations, it ultimately falls away. So too, these temporary believers, these sign seekers do not end up confessing their faith and believing in the Lord Jesus Christ ultimately. They're not losing a salvation that they once had, but rather they are proving they never had it to begin with. And we, as we've said, we've seen the reason in verse 43, it's because they love the glory that comes from man rather than the glory of God. And that's our question this morning, Right? How can they believe? How can anyone believe? We are all born dead in our sins and trespasses. We're all born hardened to our sin, blind to our sin. And the answer is, how can we believe? The answer is, we can't. (laughs) It's impossible. We are unable in and of ourselves to believe in our sin. But as our Lord says in Luke chapter 18 What is impossible with man is possible with God. What is impossible with man is possible with God. We see that what we need is not a little moral reformation. It's not a self-help motivational speech but the supernatural, transformative, radical work of the triune God to save us, right? We need a new heart. (laughs) We need new desires. We need to be born from above. We need the Spirit of God to cause us to be born again. And that apart from God's sovereign and saving work, we are no better than the people described in in our passage That in our flesh, we too desire the praise and glory that comes from men. We too desire the praise and glory that comes from men. But the glory of the gospel of God is that He has worked salvation for His people, right? He has done it all. What did we sing about this this morning in our new song? Salvation's work is His from first to last Salvation's work is His from first to last, and it is only when we see the true darkness and blindness of our unbelief and our total inability to save ourselves that we can see the true glory and grace of God's sovereign work of salvation. And that leads us into the application point of our message today, that it's only when we see the darkness of our sin and unbelief, that we can see the true glory of what God has done for us in Christ. And so the call this morning for us here in this room, the call this morning is to come to the light, to believe in the light, believe and run to the Lord Jesus Christ, that today is the day of salvation. Confess Christ and run to Him because the temptation that we face this morning, all of us, is that our hearts would be hardened in sin. That our hearts would be hardened in sin. That we would believe the lie of sin. That we would believe that the darkness of evil and the blindness of unbelief will actually bring us life and satisfaction. That sin is actually not so bad. It's not such a big thing. And that the need to continue in our sin is not of any real consequence. We can continue in our sin. We can keep going. Maybe we can push it into the dark where no one will see it, but there's no real consequences of us continuing in our sin. And I think this passage is here to wake us up, to wake us up to the reality of the hardening effects of sin. I don't know if you've ever seen any like power lifters. They have these things called smelling salts, right? They put them up to their nose and they get a big whiff of them and it wakes them up and it helps them to lift these strong weights, right? And the smell is terrible. It's awful. It's hard to smell, but it wakes them up and wakes up their body. And I feel like this passage is like that for us, right? That it's not always pleasant to see the darkness of our unbelief, the darkness of our sin. But I pray that this passage would wake us up from our slumber and help us to see the true darkness of our unbelief and wake us up from our slumber, right? That hell is real, that the judgment of God is real, that our hearts can indeed become hardened to the effects of sin. We can become calloused to our transgressions. We can become blind to our need of Christ Just as the people in this passage became blind to their need for Christ, he was standing right in front of them, and yet they did not believe. But secondly, we see our total inability to save ourselves. We see in this passage our total inability to save ourselves. That man, apart from God's working and sovereign saving act, cannot save or redeem himself. That man, apart from God's saving work, cannot save himself. That if God does not act, salvation is impossible. Not because God acts maliciously, right? Not because God violates our will somehow, but because we are dead in our sins and trespasses, that because of our sinful nature, our confession will say that we are made opposite to all good and wholly inclined to all evil. This is the reality of total depravity, that we actually love the darkness. We desire the darkness. We don't want to come to the light. We're enslaved, we're imprisoned to our sins, and left to ourselves, we are utterly lost. But the good news of the gospel is that God has not left us to our own devices, that he has not left us in our sin and transgression, and that it's only when we see how helpless we are apart from him that we can love and glorify him for what he's done in the new birth. And that brings us to our third point this morning. We see in this passage the absolute necessity of the new birth, the absolute necessity of the new birth. That there's no amount of external circumstances, no amount of external evidences, miraculous signs, or white-knuckled obedience that can cause someone to be born again. These people saw miracles and they would not believe. They were people of the Jews and they would not believe. They had every external advantage and yet they would not believe. And we see that is because God must act. God must act act in his sovereign mercy by quickening and illuminating by the power of the spirit, by opening the eyes of our hearts, opening our blind eyes of unbelief, giving us hearts of flesh where there were only hearts of stone. This is the light of the gospel shining into our sin and dead hearts. And this is what we sang about this morning in that great hymn, And Can It Be? The third verse goes like this, Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye infused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. That we see here, this is what God has done in the hearts of his people, shining the light of the gospel in, breaking the chains of sin and causing us to be born again by this work of the new birth, by this work of regeneration, making us sons and daughters of light. And we can also see in this passage that this is why we preach the cross. This is why we preach the cross. This is why we preach Christ and Him crucified, the free offer of the gospel to all who would believe. As Charles Spurgeon said, The same sun that hardens the clay melts the ice. The same sun that hardens the clay melts the ice. That for some, this message of the cross is foolishness. Just like these people thought, it's folly. It's foolishness. It doesn't make any sense. The Lord of glory put to death, the Son of God crucified. That is not amazing, That's not very practical for my walk. That's not powerful. That's not going to attract a bunch of people. That is not why. It's not entertaining enough. It's not going to get people in the door and they see it as foolishness and folly. And so the temptation for us is to change the message, to water it down, right? To say something different, to say the gospel is actually about you. The gospel is all about you. It's about what you want. It's about signs and wonders. It's about all these other things except Christ and Him crucified. And what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 22 is this. For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ and Him crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles but to those who are called Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. That the true power of God is not found in any external thing, but the proclamation of Christ in Him crucified. That is how sinners are going to be saved. Melting the icy, stony hearts of unbelief, illuminating with the light of the gospel in our darkened souls, the true power of God. <laughs> so that we actually love the light, so that we want to come to the light, so that we no longer want to walk in darkness or seek after the glory of man, but we desire, first and foremost, the glory of God. And we can see why this is so, is because the message of the cross gives all glory to God. It takes all glory away from us and our abilities, and it points us to what God has done in sovereignly working salvation for us, that this is the true glory and grace of God in his sovereign work of salvation. Not his reckless love, but his relentless love, his unfailing love, our Savior's sovereign love for us. That is what he's done for us in Christ, and that's our hope this morning. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace undeserved and demerited favor. Not only did we not deserve your grace, but in our sin, we spit in your face. We loved the darkness because it hid our sin and iniquity. We tried to hide from you. We tried to run. And yet in your sovereign grace and mercy, you pursued us and in your relentless love and in the message of Christ in the gospel, you found us and you saved us. And we see in the message of the gospel the sovereign love that you have for your people. That even though we did not deserve your love, you have come for us. And in the person and work of Christ and his righteousness alone, we are saved. We are made new. Our hearts are made new. The light of the gospel shining in so that we can believe, so that we can come most willingly and most freely because of what Christ has done for us by the power of the Spirit. And so as we come to you this morning, we pray that we would not harden our hearts to our sin, that we would honestly look at ourselves and see the wickedness and the darkness of our sin but that immediately after we would run to Christ and see the grace that he's given us in his sacrifice and in his mercy alone. That we would run to him and we would see his grace and we would no longer live in condemnation and guilt, but that we would live in gratitude for all that you have done for us, seeking to walk in the light, seeking to obey your laws and commands and seeking to live for you. We can only do this by the power of your Spirit. And so we come this morning prostrating ourselves before you, asking and praying that you would work this supernatural work in us this morning. We need your help. We need your grace. And we thank you that you have promised in Christ that we have true salvation in his finished work. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.